0: The country has is, is lurched uh, well to the left under the mainstream Democratic Party, and I think it's come back to bite them. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
1: Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Lions, to another edition of Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. We've got another one coming at you today in the 264th episode of this program, which means that you can find today's show notes featuring links to all sorts of things, including everything we discuss with my guests in today's episode over at lionsofliberty.com slash 264. And I know many of you out there are facing major healthcare decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is currently the president of the Mises Institute, where he serves as a writer, a public speaker, and a dedicated activist for free markets and a more libertarian society. He previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to a little-known congressman and past guest on this very program by the name of Dr. Ron Paul, for whom he wrote hundreds of articles and speeches. He is, of course, the great Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff, are you ready to roar?
0: I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's a pleasure, Jeff, and it's fine to finally have you on the show talking to you here. I've had a lot of people from the Mises Institute on, and you guys have always got some great insights, so I'm looking forward to this one. And we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about the reason I brought you on here, which is really to talk about some silver linings that you see in the 2016 election. You gave a talk at the Dallas-Fort Worth Mises Circle touching on a lot of this stuff, but first I want to get to know you a little bit better, so why don't you tell the listeners out there how you first took interest in politics overall and eventually in the ideas of liberty?
0: Well, it's interesting, Mark. I actually met Dr. Ron Paul, whom you mentioned earlier, in 1988, when I was still an undergraduate in college. He came to visit our campus when he was running for president on the Libertarian Party ticket. And I was already a pretty dedicated libertarian by then as a result, really, of my older brother, just one of those weird happenstances in life. Uh, My older brother was an early reader of Ayn Rand and uh, um, Hayek and Reason magazine. So back then, when I say one of those weird things in life is because back then being a libertarian is a lot more rare than it is today. It wasn't nearly as common, whereas today you can meet people all around the world who share our mindset. So it's really something that I got interested in as a late teenager in the late 1980s. So it's, it's something I've always been, I didn't go through some sort of conservative or liberal phase like a lot of kids do in college. I don't know why I don't have any big explanation, but it's an important question and we shouldn't disregard it. We, sh- we shouldn't gloss it over and Doug Casey has talked about this, you know, are people natural born libertarians? Is there a genetic component that even sounds crazy? Uh, is it somehow reflexive in us? And that's why conservatives and liberals just sort of don't get liberty or is it actually a a wholly environmental thing? Is it just uh, the accident of how and, and where and why you were brought up? We don't know. But it's an important question because if there is some sort of nature versus nurture argument to be made. Then it ought to help us rethink our strategy, right? We ought to we ought to accept perhaps the the idea that libertarians will be a minority vanguard in society as opposed to a majority or a popular held opinion.
1: That's a really interesting way to uh, to look at things, Jeff. Because I mean, I think so many libertarians and and just people politically just go about kind of putting out their politics and trying to convince people as if everyone has the same brain they do. Uh, but the suggestion that maybe some of us are perhaps even genetically inclined to to behave in certain ways, to think in certain ways, uh, in some ways that almost takes that strategy off the table if there's truth to it, or depending on, on how much truth there is to it. And, and and that might in some ways explain why libertarians and people that really truly do believe in the ideas of individual liberty are a minority and, and perhaps might even remain one.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting and it goes to everything we do. But if you look at history, Murray Rothbard wrote about this, especially in Conceived in Liberty, uh, which is an f- unbelievable four volume history of the American colonial period. The plain truth of the matter is that in any society, real movements are generally engineered by a five or 10% minority. Uh, there's uh, there's some, something about human nature. So if we're out there getting after it, There's no reason that we can't uh, influence society and have an impact way beyond our numbers.
1: I want to go back and touch a little bit more on your time working for Dr. Paul. I mean, it's really interesting to think that you knew Dr. Paul uh, and became familiar with him in 1988. At a time when most people listening to this program probably had never even heard of libertarianism or or knew that there was such a thing and probably hadn't even heard of Ron Paul. Uh, so, I mean, knowing Ron Paul for that long, and obviously you ended up working with him and working on his staff, what are your biggest takeaways from what sets Ron Paul apart as a politician? Whether it's just the way that he went about po- – I mean, obviously there's a lot of them, but uh, more specifically how he treated his staff, how he, how he went about the day-to-day operations of politics, how did that differ from other people on Capitol Hill?
0: Well, first and foremost, he's just such a nice guy. He was an OBGYN for many, many, many years, delivered 4,000 babies. So that gave him a bedside manner that most politicians don't have. And he's just not a guy who has a lot of ego or self-importance or hubris, uh, really focused on family. Three of his five kids are medical doctors. uh, So this is not your typical politician who's grasping or self-serving, first and foremost. But, you know, it was easy for mainstream folks – media folks to kind of say Ron wasn't a great retail politician because he had this homespun folksy message that didn't sound like sound bites or, or fabricated lines. But the truth of the matter is, is that Ron is an excellent retail politician. And here's why. Even people who disagree with him after seeing or meeting him or hearing him like him. And that's to me, is the definition of a good retail politician, and I hate to say that sometimes the opposite was true of Rand, even to to libertarians, whom uh, you know who who were inclined to like Rand. He came off a bit standoffish, uh, you know, like like he wasn't particularly enjoying running for president, didn't really want to be there, and, and that really came through. So, Ron. When I worked for him, his district in South Texas, his original district had some heavily black areas and uh, Ron was very popular in those black churches. He, they w- people would tell him, I'm not going to vote for you <laughs> because these were just majority democratic uh, churches in neighborhoods. But they liked him and and, and they respected him as, especially on war. So likability is half the game and it's it's something that libertarians haven't always been so good at.
1: Do you think that's part of why Rand Paul's campaign just didn't seem to take off? Because he, he doesn't necessarily have those same qualities that Ron had in terms of feeling relatable, feeling like someone, I don't want to say Rand is unlikable. I've never met the guy. I, I don't think he comes across as unlikable, but he might not come across as maybe extra likable <laughs> like, like a Ron Paul does.
0: Well, the the number one problem for Rand or any other libertarian is that we have this two party duopoly. So you're running for president in a as as a libertarian in a Republican Party that doesn't really have a libertarian wing. You know, the the Democrats have a progressive wing. There are radical, radical socialists, radical communists who nonetheless every four years go vote Democrat even though they're hugely disappointed by Hillary or whomever the candidate might be because they're willing to play incremental ball and, and move things uh, even slightly in their direction. But the libertarian and conservative side, we tend to be so fractured uh, and there are lots of libertarians who don't vote. So, you know, the, the GOP had two opportunities to vote for Ron Paul in the primaries against McCain and later against Romney and, and in both in both instances, they resoundingly failed to do so. So Rand was up against it simply by running as a libertarian or libertarian-ish candidate in a party that's just, not very libertarian. And as for running third party, America's just not set up for it. We, uh, we need – a. I would much prefer a parliamentary system in this country where we, we, we could have multiple parties represented in Congress. We could have shifting alliances and coalitions, single-issue coalitions that could have come together to let's say oppose the Iraq War. But instead, we have this terrible two-party duopoly that just forces everybody down one lane or another. And once you're in that lane, it's awfully hard to go against your party. And so it put Rand in in a box. And um, and he's also a, kind of an intellectual guy. Obviously, being a medical doctor and and having grown up with a father like Ron, he was he he read a lot. He has a lot of intellectual interests. So I think that. He that there's a little bit of wonkishness to him that is not as quite as as slick as, uh, you know, like a Bill Clinton out there who just comes across so so uh, genuine, even though he's not. So it's a very tough thing. And um, voters are fickle. They're not rational. That's that's unfortunately part of it.
1: Sure. And and as we've seen with the rise of Donald Trump, and maybe it's just an exaggeration of what has already been happening in politics over the last several decades, maybe as long as there's been politics, is that the electorate, they don't vote based on who made the best, most rational, most logical argument, as sad as that is. But that is what Rand Paul was up there trying to do. He was trying to you know give a two minute explanation of of why the debt is too high and, and get into monetary policy and get into all these fine details but that's not what people are looking for sadly i mean that that's not what gets people to the polls that's not what gets people out there even ron paul when he had the he had the ability to explain things very well but even he was able to craft these soundbites and the Fed. He'd be able to just very quickly describe how inflation is theft. I mean, just things like that. He, he was able to capture a lot of the same ideas, but to do so in, in kind of the way you reference more in a, the, uh, the the style of a retail politician, it just so happens Ron Paul was speaking truths and not just manipulating people like 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 Donald Trump and so many other politicians do.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Messaging and sales, which is what libertarian activism really is, at the end of the day, it's sales or libertarian education. Uh, sales is a, is a complex psychological uh, process and it's not something that, that comes naturally to everyone. It's something I think all of us have to learn. But if, if we want to create a better, freer world for ourselves and for our kids, we better talk about it and we better study it because uh, it, it's not just about having some airtight philosophy if, if, if no one's buying it.
1: Right now, as I mentioned earlier, you recently gave a talk at the Mises Circle, and this was just a couple of days before the election, which I find really interesting because I didn't come across this until after the election. And, and you point out a lot of silver linings in the in the 2016 election. But like I said, you gave this talk before the election even happened. So obviously, I think you saw these silver linings taking place regardless of who actually won the election, uh, more so maybe from the process of, of the election. Now, before we get into the specifics of those, uh, I'm just curious, did, did you, were you surprised by the election result. I mean, it seems like the, the most of the media certainly was surprised. I live in California. Most people I know were surprised. I actually had people saying this is not a possibility they had considered, which blows my mind because it was one of two possibilities that were almost definitely going to happen. So were you surprised by this? And and do you think that there was, a, you know, a positive, more of a positive or, or a negative one way or the other when it comes to Trump versus Hillary?
0: Well, yes, I was surprised. I had no special insights. Uh, that anybody else didn't have. And the reason I was surprised is because I just looked at the electoral college map from Romney versus Obama in 2012. And I I looked at that map and said, okay – uh, Donald Trump has to hold every state Romney won, and he also has to pick up about an additional sixty-nine votes, seventy votes. So, so I just started doing the math on that. So, oh my gosh, what combination of states can we put together? He definitely has to win Florida, but he also has to win Pennsylvania and Ohio, and that and all these combinations just seem so unlikely that I I, uh, I thought Hillary would win by you know let's say three to five points. Uh, somewhere along the lines that Romney did. So don't count me as some prognosticator because <laughs> I certainly wasn't. I do think it's a good thing and and I don't care what Trump does. I, I mean, I care in the sense that I don't want him to do ill libertarian things, but I don't care what he does so much who he appoints that going forward. This, this election to me, the remarkable thing about it is that many millions of Americans went off script, went off the narrative and didn't do what we're told we're supposed to do, which is vote for the safe person and instead voted for someone who I think quite unfairly was maligned as this re- retrograde, xenophobic, racist, sexist guy. And that that indicates to me a level of anger and dissent out there that's deeper than we thought. And I think that's a good thing because it shows me that people are really starting to to say, hey. Uh, we're not just going to accept this, this narrow range of choices that the two parties present us and for, for all intents and purposes, Donald Trump is a third party candidate and we're not just going to accept this narrow range of of, of uh, arguments and, and debate that the media permits us to have. Uh, we're going outside that and we're going to get our information from social media or we're going to get our information from the comment section in a New York Times article, not the article. Whatever it might be, so yeah, I think libertarians ought to view this as as an opportunity. Of course, there's a danger. Every new politician, there's always a danger. I mean, God knows you give this, this much power to one person, it's obscene. But uh, uh, the 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 voters are what interest me here, and the fact that they were that fed up sounds to me like like you know they would be interested in in well-crafted libertarian messages uh, presented in a populist way.
1: Yeah, that was actually the first silver lining that you, you pointed out in your talk at the media, in the, the Mises circle, the fact that the media has lost control of, of the narrative, and I, I just don't think that you maybe even realized to the extent that that silver lining was true, because you know you, you said this before, you know realizing that Trump could actually win and actually would go on to win, and I got to say the same thing. I mean, I, I have been. Looking at Trump for the last year and thinking that he is going to continue to defy odds because he's done it the entire way, uh, he's done it all throughout the Republican primary. I mean, they said he was done in November of 2015. They started saying he was done and couldn't go any further. Uh, so that part of hmm. me wanted to say, I guess he can keep doing. He can keep defying expectations. But even me became so brainwashed, I think, by the media and the smear campaigns and that sort of thing. Because if they were this effective, if the Hillary campaign, which we literally know is colluding with the media thanks to WikiLeaks, they were able to craft this this view of Donald Trump. Now, I have a lot of criticisms of Donald Trump, but they're all policy-based. They were able to craft a view of Donald Trump as this... Uh, monster, tyrannical, uh, racist, uh, sexual assaulter. A- and I-, I really do think now there may be elements of that in his personality. I'm not saying the guy is an angel, but the way that they were able to craft this image of him, I thought that they had been so effective doing it that, that he might not be able to defy these odds anymore. So, the- And I- honestly, I think that the fa- the fact that they were able to paint this image of him is the reason he didn't win even bigger. I mean, I, I think there's the possibility that-, that we could even see a lot of, of suppressed – potential Trump support simply because that messaging was so effective. So it really does show there might not be an intellectual uh, sway behind this movement, but the media is absolutely losing control of the narrative because the narrative has been for over a year. This guy's a joke. This guy can't win. Here we are.
0: Yeah, it's it's a huge change. This is a probably the biggest political event in, in this country since, you know, certainly since the uh, since World War II. It's it's an enormous political event and the fact that so many people didn't see it coming I think it's going to represent a sea change in thinking and and look uh, This country hasn't been on a libertarian course. So Libertarians should like this. They should say hey an abrupt change in Mentality or course even if we know it's not ideological Trump's not Trump has the same policies that Hillary has but in uh, a change in mindset a shift in mindset a receptiveness to a different kind of, of person or messages, man, that's huge, and we shouldn't be asleep on this. And I'm, and I'm sorry. I, I think a lot of libertarians have been a bit whiny here. I mean, here's a guy, <laughs>
1: libertarians comes whining, a, come on. Yeah,
0: I mean, a guy who that comes before. along. <laughs> And almost – and he's not a plant. I mean I've, I've looked at, at this from a lot of different ways. He's not a plant. This isn't something that someone put him up to. As a matter of fact, when he was sitting in that, uh, in that hotel room with Trump and some other people, that I mean, evening, you could tell on his face that he was a little shocked. That, that he was sort of looking and saying, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? What have I committed myself to? I mean you could tell. But th- this is a guy who almost single-handedly came along and put a shiv in the Bush crime family. He put a shiv in the Clinton crime family. We will never hear from those two political dynasties. Well, I guess we'll hear from Chelsea. I mean, this is a huge political achievement and the idea that we're not supposed to see anything uh, of libertarian benefit of this is absurd. The political class is the enemy of liberty and and to the extent the political class suffered a defeat, Uh, not a single uh, living president voted for Trump apparently. When the political class suffers a defeat, that's good for liberty. I don't want to hear, uh, you know, oh, Trump's a protectionist. Yeah, of course he is. He's not a libertarian. That's not what we're talking about. So uh, I think we have to to seize this moment. And, and, you know, where we really have to seize it is foreign policy. There's an opening here, and it's about to get shut. If we get a Rudy Giuliani or a John Bolton as secretary of state, I mean, uh, we need to squawk loud and clear and say... Part of the reason you got elected was because there's an incoherent uh, foreign policy, especially with respect to the Middle East, that has dominated this country since way before 9-11, really since Reagan ushered in the neoconservative era. And it's costing us trillions of dollars. It's costing us American lives. It's costing us American uh, injuries and casualties. And it's costing hundreds of thousands of foreign lives, too. And and worst of all, it's causing blowback for future generations. So we, we shouldn't let neocons absorb Trump. And we ought to resist that.
1: Sure. And I think on foreign policy, I think that's one area a lot of libertarians had focused in on with Trump because it's one area that he sounded consistently – pretty good. I don't want to say amazing because, you know, he says one great thing about maybe talking with Russia and not being so involved in disasters like Iraq and Libya, and then the next thing you know he'll turn around and talking about taking the oil and then bombing the shit out of ISIS, whatever that might mean. So there's reason to worry and then even more reason to worry when we see the fact that he's considering appointing guys like John Bolton and and Rudy Giuliani to his to very important positions uh, dealing with foreign policy, which obviously is going to give us a lot of pause, but at least the fact That he kind of put out one sort of foreign policy gives libertarians and other people the the chance to heavily criticize him uh, as soon as he starts starts to veer from that. Whereas Hillary, we always knew what we were getting, and you know if she became a neocon or enacted neocon foreign policies, as we had no reason to believe she wouldn't. I mean, it would just be what the American people had already accepted and had already decided they were okay with. At least here we see, and I don't know how much of the vote was based on foreign policy. I, I honestly. Sadly, I guess, doubt that that so much of it was, whereas a lot of libertarian, very vague libertarian support might have been. Uh, I think, obviously, I think economics and just the loss of jobs and a general rejection of the the establishment was more what pushed Trump to win here. Uh, Now, another silver lining you pointed out, I actually want to quote you here real quick because I think it's actually a very compelling commentary, particularly considering what we have seen since the election. So I'm just going to read this quote here you have about progressives and Democrats becoming exposed. You stated... Progressives and Democrats have been fully exposed as the illiberal authoritarians they've always been, regardless of their stated policies or objectives. The election has made plain their real character, their reactionary tactics, and their now open agenda. The idea that conservatives exist or even participate in elections is an affront to them. And and you again, you wrote this and said this before we saw that the reaction to Trump's Election. Uh, we've seen protests uh, on, a, on a pretty large scale. I mean, even in, in here in LA, there's every day there's a story about high schools walking out in protest at this election. Um, you see violence in Portland. Uh, a, pro- a protest actually turned into violence. You see this reaction, and, and and when I get into conversations with people about it, I, I keep hearing this same sort of smugness. This idea that. Uh, they can't believe half the country would be so ignorant to vote for an obvious racist because they, some, some, and I don't want when I say they, I don't want to lay, you know, smear everyone that happens to hold a progressive label or a democratic label, but I'm referring specifically to people I have encountered, uh, in this dialogue. Uh, it's the idea that most of the country is ignorant. They're so racist. They don't even know they're racist. And, uh, we have to continue to battle this because they obviously don't know what's good for them if they voted for Trump. And that's a very frightening, And as you pointed out, authoritarian attitude.
0: Well, it certainly is. And and I'd like to think there are good progressives. I knew I know some. But what we need to understand is that your average rank and file Democrat, just your typical Democratic voter, what they really believe in their heart of hearts tends to be quite abjectly socialist. Many, many Democrats, mainstream Democrats, not just people at the fringes of Occupy Wall Street. Or, uh, you know, the Never Trump movement, not not just people with the fringes. I mean, average rank and file Democrats believe in nationalizing whole industries like education and health care. They believe in a guaranteed minimum income. They believe in, in uh, restrictions on income. They believe in a much more progressive income tax. They believe that global warming is an existential threat for which we should immediately start phasing out fossil fuels, which is an absolute, which is a, a ludicrous proposition. We can't, you know, if fossil fuels are here to stay for a long, long time. But the average Republican, you scratch the surface of the average Republican voter and he or she does not believe what Ron Paul believes. They don't believe in abolishing whole agencies. They don't believe in getting rid of the income tax. They don't believe in getting out of the UN, you know, any of these kinds of things. So the country is has lurched uh, well to the left under the mainstream Democratic Party. And I think it's come back to bite them. This constant refrain of identity politics, which has been their entire raison d'etre since the 90s. You know, they, they've abandoned the idea that they're a blue-collar working-class party that organizes at a factory somewhere. They become a party of elites, of, of college professors, and especially of of identity politics mongers. And so when you tell people long, you know, repeat something for a long enough period that whites are evil, whites are bad, white men this, white men that, at some point, you create a monster that you hope to slay, which is white identity politics. And that comes together in subtle forms uh, when I guess when people vote for Trump. But it's, uh, you know, they, they, they decided to live and die by identity politics. And in this election, they died by it. I, I don't know what else to say to progressives. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not a message that worked. Jeff, I'm not quite
1: done with you yet. We've got a little more to break down here. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell our listeners about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer, and I purchased my own health insurance, and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Sure, and to my progressive friends that I talk to, I think the the sad thing is there is probably a lot of issues where I could come together with them on, uh, and and many libertarians could, whether it's NSA spying or 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 the foreign policy. Then again, I start to question how much they actually care about these issues when this identity politics seem to seems to take precedence over everything. When when Barack Obama got a pass on these things for eight years, so uh, there's a lot of reasons to question, you know, how how sound their principles even are, uh, even when they do purport to have them at times. But uh, I think either way, what you're seeing here is, is an opportunity because the media has cracked, the narrative has cracked, and whenever there is a crack, there is an opportunity, and and hopefully libertarians can seize on this opportunity to try to sway some people to try to show people that there is a different way. There's a, a way that's not that looks nothing like Donald Trump. Uh, that way also looks nothing like what they're talking about. But there is another way. So hopefully people will at least be a little more open-minded to, to these ideas. So uh, obviously there was one attempt made this year to, to make headway on that, and that was through the Libertarian Party. And many people felt that you now putting up two former Republican governors who looked very respectable at least on the surface until you talk to them for a few minutes. Uh that that this would be the best way to promote the ideas of liberty. They were quote fiscally conservative, quote socially tolerant or socially liberal depending on what day you talk to these guys, Gary Johnson and Bill Weldum. At the end of the day, some people might have different ideas about whether they were successful or not. They did get the most votes of any Libertarian Party candidates in history. So if that's the way you judge it, then maybe they were successful. I'm not convinced how many people learned anything new about the ideas of liberty thanks to those two. So, so what's your view on the Johnson-Weld campaign and, and uh, is, is their style of libertarianism a, a way forward? It is a way forward, but is it a, is it a productive way forward?
0: I wish they had stuck to a consistent message. Now, Weld, we can dispense with him because he was simply installed by the powers that be to sort of keep an eye on the LP and make sure that the uh, adults in the room had a voice. And, and and frankly, I think he was installed to make sure that uh, the party went after Trump properly. So I, I don't think he was – in any way a real candidate for vice president or someone who wanted to promote the Libertarian Party or promote its message. I don't think that was his job or his role or his goal. Uh, I do think he was installed uh, and I do think that was somewhat nefarious. As far as Gary Johnson, I mean, I don't know where the guy was who used to be around in the 90s. I mean, this was a type A guy, a guy who had made some money for himself by running some successful companies, a guy who had been elected in in a statewide race again, a type a, a, a super athlete who had done all kinds of extreme sports, you know, the kind of skiing where they drop you out of a helicopter at the top of some, uh, virgin snow on a mountain. I mean, this was a, a mount, he was a mountain climber. This is a type a guy. And, and I don't know where that guy went, uh, because he was a, an absolute mess on the campaign trail. And he insisted on aligning himself with leftist narratives. And all that did was, was, uh, um, uh, you know, turn off lots of libertarians and potential libertarians in the form of disaffected conservatives, while not winning any Bernie or Jill Stein or Occupy Wall Street or or Elizabeth Warren types to his side. I mean, it it, it was just a one-way street. And and the idea that we're socially tolerant libertarians got nothing to say about that. Libertarianism ought to uh, apply equally to atheists and to Orthodox Jews and to. Hardcore Catholics and to uh, light, you know, milk toast Protestant soccer moms and uh, Buddhists and and Muslims and everybody in between. This, you know, socially tolerant is is just a is just a left wing meaningless platitude. What 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 libertarian is about is is reducing the size and scope of political power in our lives. Beyond that, it's got nothing to say about how society's ordered or organized and um, and the, the, the social institutions under which it's ordered or organized. So I, I, the idea that we're low-tax liberals or pro-pot lib- conservatives is, is is really dated and really trite and really played. And, you know, I think I, I've read where, you know, it was such a bad year in terms of Hillary versus Trump that he should have gotten 5% just as a protest vote without even trying. So, I, I you know, I don't think... That he really represented the LP in the sense that I don't think longstanding standing LPers, I haven't been involved in the LP since the early '90s, so I'm out of the loop. But I don't think uh, longtime LPers felt that he was necessarily carrying the banner for them. It was more sort of he was carrying the, the banner for Gary Johnson. So you know, obviously a disappointment, but more importantly, uh, an opportunity lost. Uh, this this certainly was a year where. An effective third party could have picked off a state or two, or picked off ten percent of the popular vote, or something like that. I mean, look at Ross Perot in nineteen ninety-two. Look what he did without social media, without the internet, without the ability to you know instantaneously communicate uh, with millions of people. Uh, he got nineteen percent. So you know, very, very very tough year. And I hope it makes the LP uh, rethink what it's doing. I've always believed it should be a state and local party because it's much easier to influence. Uh, let's say a county supervisor's election in your county, where you where the winner might only get three, four thousand votes. You know, on a playing field like that, libertarians have a real chance to match uh, in terms of fundraising and media exposure. But when you get up into national elections, it's so hopelessly expensive that it seems it seems a waste of resources
1: especially if you can be more effective on the local level well okay maybe you can win a congressional race here and there win a senate race here and there suddenly there's a libertarian a guy with an L next to his name in congress now i think that would have more of an effect on accepting the third party than continuing to just try to put all the resources into 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 trying to wedge your way into the into the presidential debate commission which a worthy cause i think they should be allowed in the debates but probably not going to happen. Whereas you can really affect those local those local races in a lot more way, as you said there. So what would your way forward be? Let's just say in four years from now, Donald Trump is not a popular president. There might even be uh, some revolt within his party since he, he pissed so many of them off on his way to the top. And you know that the left is going to continue to oppose him this whole time. So let's imagine a scenario where we have a similar opportunity. We have someone like Donald Trump on one side and maybe some sort of Elizabeth Warren type progressive on the other side. Will libertarians, have that opportunity again, and what what would be the best way to to push forward the message of liberty politically um, if the scenario presents itself
0: once again? Well, there are areas where populist sentiment happens to be correct from a libertarian perspective, right? There are areas where populist sentiment is very ill libertarian. But so why not choose popular issues and make those the highlight and the focus? And what I would suggest that Gary Johnson should have done and what any libertarian should probably do in four years is is number one, talk about the Fed, talk about the Fed, talk about the Fed. The general public doesn't really understand the Fed. They, they don't really understand how it operates mechanically. That's no crime. Neither do most economists, but they do have a sense, a growing sense that It creates an unworthy class of people who generate wealth beyond what they produce for society as a result, that it creates this banker class. And and that's an area where, you know, and the Fed is simple. It it cuts through. That might be a little radical for most voters, but for 10 or 20 or 30% of them, it it probably sounds really good. And then you fill in the, the details later. Why would you end the Fed? What would you replace it with? Well, how would that work? What would money look like? What about interest rates? Don't we need the Fed? Blah, blah, blah. You fill that in, okay? A presidential election is not the time for policy papers. It's a time for big macro, big picture sound bites. The second thing is I would just say get out of the Middle East. I think uh, I would have repeated that ad nauseum if I were Gary Johnson, because the American public doesn't understand these wars. They Afghanistan's the longest war in U.S. history. We spent trillions of dollars. We've got nothing to show for this except for a destabilized and radicalized Middle East. And, and people, it doesn't matter why people oppose a war, why they oppose it now, whether they're coming to it simply because you know they're a code pink left left wing person and George Bush is president or because they're a Pat Buchanan right-wing person and and Barack Obama is president, it doesn't matter. You you don't ask for people's motivations or purity. You ask for their votes. So I would hammer home two themes, end the Fed, which is an anti-cronyist theme, which is very popular and populist and correct, by the way, and get out of the Middle East. Also popular, also populist, also correct. There are lots and lots of other libertarian issues that are not so popular, so those are fine you have to be honest and deal with those but you don't have to lead with them. So you know what what the landscape's going to look like in 4 years though I I I can't even begin to tell.
1: Yeah and I think it's no coincidence Jeff that those two uh, major issues that you talked about are the two major issues that Ron Paul was pushing forward. And, and I don't know anybody who has inspired more people that he did it for me to learn more about the ideas of liberty, to go out there and be an activist for liberty. That is what Ron Paul did for me and the, and the people that I founded this this uh, podcast with. So, I mean, the proof—and it's not just me. I, I mean, I've heard probably literally hundreds of these stories over the years of doing this podcast of how Ron Paul has inspired people. And, and I think he does that because he's able to find those populist messages that— that a lot of people are really on the right side of, and, and put them in a way that's that's very simple and very straightforward and very bold. And I do agree with you. That is the path to to pushing a real libertarian message. You're not going to do it by you know by reading man, man Economy and State on a stage somewhere. You're going to have to do it in sound bites because that's that is the political you know the political reality that we live in. And uh, Jeff, I know that yourself and the Mises Institute are going to be a big part of pushing forward the ideas of liberty. So why don't you just uh, let everybody know out there how they can find your work in the Mises Institute? and what they can expect from you guys over the next few years.
0: Well, we hope to just keep pushing the envelope on the education side. We're not activists. We're not interested in public policy per se, but we are interested in sort of waking up some people through the educational process and teaching people what we would call real economics and doing it fast, cheap, quick, dirty uh, on the fly uh, via the unbelievable power of the digital revolution. So you know, come visit us at Mises.org. Virtually any book on Austrian economics you might care to read is probably available free in a PDF or HTML or ebook format. Uh, follow us at Mises, M I S E S, on Twitter. Follow me at Jeff Deist, one word on Twitter. And, and we are, have a bunch of events lined up for 2017, big year for us, including a gala event in the fall in October in New York City our 35th anniversary to commemorate uh, the life and work of Murray Rothbard, somebody that not only the, the right has tried to scrub from history, but depressingly, even some libertarians have tried to scrub from history. So we'll be celebrating him. Uh, and we've got a whole slate of events during the year. So, you know, if you, if you can't attend something like that, please come to Mises.org. And uh, um, I hope you've got some, some time to read because we've got a huge, huge, huge library there. And it, it, if, if you haven't been, it might be an eye opener for you.
1: Absolutely. If you're new to these ideas, and I know a lot of people, we are our show has been growing over the last few months. I know a lot of people out there are new to the idea ideas of liberty, and the Mises Institute is certainly a great place to start. Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on and appreciate all your insights. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Jeff. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the great Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute. We've had a lot of fine folks from the Mises Institute on the show over the years. And you can go back and listen to them all by checking out the podcast archive, the full archive. Over three years, we've been having great conversations about the ideas of liberty. You can find that all at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. You can, of course, get access to all our programs by hitting that subscribe button. It's so crucial that you guys do this. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes, on Stitcher, however you listen to this program. And please, while you're there, please Give us a five-star rating and a great review. These are just tiny little things you can do to help this show continue to grow as it has been so steadily over the years as more and more people come in to hear about the ideas of liberty to join this conversation. You guys can join the conversation with us over on Facebook by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can just type Lions of Liberty Forum into your Facebook search bar. We'll also link to that in today's show notes, which again can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash Sixty-four. Now, this coming Wednesday, I know it's a day early, but hey, we've got a schedule to keep with here. We've got our Thanksgiving special. And if you guys heard our Thanksgiving special last year, when we teamed up with our friends from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, you'll know that it was pretty damn fun. We had a pretty good time. There was some adult conversation. There will probably be again but we're going to once again team up with our great friends at the Johnny Rocket Launchpad for a little Thanksgiving dinner, a fun little podcast. I really look forward to it, so you can check that out this coming Wednesday and of course on Friday, once again as always, John O'Dermatt will bring you another great edition of his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system with Felony Friday. So much great conversation continuing to come your way here. Even post-election. That's right. We don't go away when the election ends. That's just when we get started here, folks. Until next time, live long and live free.